You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We continue our series on the book of Revelation. We've come to the first part of chapter 8. And in connection with that, let's turn first of all to Romans chapter 8, the verses 12 to 30. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Then we turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, the verses 12 to 17. I watched as he, meaning the Lamb, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Then we turn to Revelation 8, 1 to 5, which is our text, and there you see it. Revelation 6 deals with the sixth seal. We come now to the seventh seal in Revelation 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, life is filled with the unexpected. Indeed, all of us can tell stories about things that happen to us that we never, ever expected. Perhaps it was that very special man or woman that you never thought you would meet. Maybe it was that business opportunity that you never imagined. Or maybe it was that child that you never dreamed would come along. In short, there is no end to the examples that we can cite of unexpected things. Yes, so that also applies to the Bible. Go back to the very beginning. Who of us would have predicted that perfect Adam would fall? Or who would have thought that God would send the flood and start all over again? Or who would have dreamed that God would begin building his international people with a barren nomad called Abram? Truly, the surprises and the unexpected are everywhere in life, as well as in the scriptures. Yes, and they're also, I might add, in our text of this morning. We've come to Revelation, the beginning of chapter 8. I should be reading preaching on the whole chapter, but I decided to divide it up. We'll look at the first five verses. And I proclaim to you the theme, the seventh seal is opened. We'll see two things. First of all, there is silence. And secondly, there is prayer. Well, beloved, in many respects, what we read here in our text catches us off guard. We didn't really expect this. Back in chapter one, we're told that the Lord has a scroll in his right hand, sealed with seven seals. Only there's a lot of consternation about that scroll because no one was able to open it. And an unopened scroll, as we saw, means that history cannot move forward. 
that God's march towards the consummation of all things into glory cannot happen. And so there was much weeping going on in heaven, weeping until suddenly the Lamb of God appeared, took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat upon the throne, and began to open the seals one after the other. And in chapter 6, those openings and their consequences are described for us. Suddenly, you can see tremendous things begin to happen. Great forces and movements are unleashed. The earth begins to tremble. Creation groans. People die. Saints suffer. And everything moves at a rather fast pace. It seems almost as if there is a kind of rush to judgment. In quick succession, those first six seals are opened. And we fully assume that once the seventh seal is opened, that will be it. The end will have come. Only it didn't happen. And it does not happen that way. First, there was an intermission in chapter 7, during which about 144,000 people are sealed. Second, we are told that countless multitudes are singing and shouting in heaven. And we're also told about those who are dressed in white robes, the robes of salvation. But then chapter 7 draws to a close, and chapter 8 dawns, and it begins when he opened the seventh seal. And then we know the intermission is over. The fireworks are about to begin. Surely now, the final judgment will come. But look, the seventh seal is opened by the Lamb of God. And nothing happens. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And instead we read there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence in heaven? How can that be? Who fired the choir? What happened to the music, to the four living creatures, to the twenty-four elders, to the thousands and tens of thousands of angels? It stopped. There is silence in heaven of all places. So what does that mean? Well, you can say when there is silence, that usually means that nothing really spectacular is going on. When there is silence, everything kind of grinds to a halt and there is inactivity and a standstill. When there is silence, it means that everything is, as it were, on hold or delayed. And if you think of it, that's not so surprising or unusual. In a sense, delays, you might say, are common in in history, between disasters and disastrous developments, you may have noticed as well, there, there sometimes seem to be postponements, even times of renewed peace and prosperity and relief. 
And you may know as well that those times, of course, add fuel to the arguments of the scoffers in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. They're quoted as saying, Oh, where is the coming He promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And the Apostle Paul had to deal with that same kind of attitude in the Thessalonian church. Sure, beloved, delays are are not not unusual or uncommon. And maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe heavenly silence is not so rare as well. But you know, it's almost always stressful. But you know, during those times of delay, the saints tend to grow impatient and the noise coming from the scoffers always seems to mount. And how many times over the years have believers not complained to me, why does God take so long? As if I had the answer. And why am I still waiting for glory? Waiting's hard. Delay is painful. Heavenly silence hurts. But then notice too, beloved, that this silence has a time attached to it. John writes, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What's the significance of the half hour or the 30 minutes? Well, again, we we need to realize that the book of Revelation, that in that book, numbers are not digits, but numbers are symbols. Take the expression one hour. It's used often in the book of Revelation as in the hour of trial, the hour of judgment, the hour of royal power and authority. And what it usually indicates is a fixed or a certain period of time in which to accomplish something. Whenever something new is going to happen in the book of Revelation, a symbolic period of one hour is often set aside for it. Well, now, if one hour is used to describe the time needed to accomplish something, then half an hour points to a fractured, incomplete period of time. Indeed, half an hour is but one in a series of broken numbers used in the book of Revelation. There is three and a half times and times and half a time. So really, half an hour is a broken hour. It represents a dramatic pause in God's relentless march to the end of times. And at the same time, it should heighten our anticipation of what is going to happen or what is coming. So what happens next? What happens during this half hour of silence, of interruption, of pause, of delay? Well, verse 2 says that seven trumpets were handed out to seven angels. Why trumpets to angels? To signal publicly, to prepare us for the fact that soon things will begin to happen again. 
The silence, in other words, is not going to last. More is coming. God is going to move forward once more. In other words, all of this, beloved, should be a reminder to us that when things go well for us in this life, and when, in a manner of speaking, things seem to go well with this planet, which usually isn't very long, we should not be lulled into complacency. It doesn't mean that God has canceled his plans. It doesn't mean he's changed his mind or altered his will. It means there's time. A time for what? Well, I would say in the first place, it means that there is time to pause and ponder and prepare. For the seventh seal is coming. There is yet time to reflect on God, on life, on relationships, on human agendas, and on the climax of history. In the second place, there is also time yet to repent. You see, every delay also represents an opportunity. An opportunity to examine your life. An opportunity to look deep into your own heart. An opportunity to weigh and to measure your words and your thoughts and your actions. And an opportunity to turn to God in humility, contriteness. And so be saved. And in the third place, beloved, there is yet time for something else to happen as well. Namely, there is yet time to pray. In that connection, the second part of our text, the part from the verses 3 to 5, is very instructive. Notice, notice another angel comes forward and he he holds a golden censer, which means a a fire pan in which there are live red-hot coals. And he comes, and he stands at the altar. And he's given incense to offer on the golden altar before the throne of God. And thereafter we're told in verse 4, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. So what is this? This is Old Testament language. This is tabernacle and temple imagery. You know, it was customary in Old Testament days that every morning and evening an incense offering would be brought before the Lord. You began the day with God and you ended the day with God. And it would take place in the holy place, in the tabernacle or temple. And all the while, the people would be standing outside in the forecourt. And it would last for about one hour. Only during that hour, the people didn't just stand around in the forecourt. No, they kneeled and they prayed. We don't kneel very often anymore. I think we should kneel a lot more. But they kneeled And they prayed. 
And so while the priest was watching the incense go up to heaven, the people were praying. And indeed, the incense that went up was said to symbolize the prayers of the people of God. And you may know the psalmist in Psalm 141, verse 2 says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Oh, and one more thing. While the prayers were being offered, there was silence. Total silence. No one was allowed to make a sound, not even a peep. No music was made, no songs were sung. Everyone was silent before the God of all the earth. And that happened on earth. But look, Revelation 8 says, it happens in heaven as well. As a matter of fact, Revelation 8 reminds us that what happens on earth is complemented by what happens in heaven. The hour of prayer is really a reality both on earth and in heaven. And the smoke of the incense being offered and portrayed is coming before the throne of God in heaven. Oh, and the similarity is also to be seen in the angel and in the priest. The angel has the golden censer filled with the prayers which he pours on the golden altar. And in the same way, the priest on earth would take a censer and pour its content on the golden altar in the holy place, in either the tabernacle or the temple. And finally, beloved, the similarity is also in the nature of this sacrifice. In both cases, the incense represents the prayers of the saints. Revelation 8, 3 even stresses that the angels were given much incense. Many, many prayers. It also stresses that this represents the prayers of all the saints. Nothing is forgotten or overlooked. And so taken together, beloved, what you have here is, is God's very special way of reminding his people that their prayers have meaning and significance. Be assured, he knows about them. He receives them. He hears them. The prayers of the saints are not like radio waves that go out and you never know whether or not they hit their target or their audience. No, God is listening. They are before his throne. These prayers reach his ears. And what a comfort that is. Let's face it, there are times when we all have our doubts about the exercise and the effectiveness of prayer. And here in Revelation 8, we're reminded once again that prayer 
Real prayer is being heard by God. You might ask, what's real prayer? Well, it's, think of Lord's Day 45. It comes from a childlike, humble heart. It's addressed to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's filled with real needs, not wants or desires. It's uttered full of confidence and expectation. Such prayers are heard and answered by God. But yet there's more. Indeed, there's something deeper going on here, for not only does God hear our prayers, He also gives our prayers a place in the execution of His plan of redemption. Notice, the seven angels cannot blow their trumpets until and unless the children of God have brought their prayers God. The angels cannot go to work unless the children of God have spoken to their Father. And that means that our prayers are included in the counsel of His will. Our prayers, together with the prayers of the saints above, are a determining factor in the carrying out of His will. Why, we can even dare to say that there is a sense in which the return of the Lord depends on the prayers of the saints. So never, beloved, underestimate the power of your praying. God has seen fit to give it a glorious and essential place in his plan of salvation. We're called upon to be a people who know God's will and who do God's will, but we are also a people who help God work out His will. Now, do I understand that? Do you understand it? Does anyone understand it? I don't think so. The relationship between our prayers and the will of God remains a mystery. Maybe a paradox or a secret as well. But it's a reality. A splendid, encouraging, uplifting reality. And so we pray on, beloved. And we teach our children to pray as soon as possible. Prayer matters. By prayer even matters more than whatever fully Completely understand. You see, our text, you may have noticed, is not quite finished. There is verse 5 as well. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, what's that all about? Well, it's a reminder that our prayers are not just heard, counted, and mysterious. It's a scary 
A reminder that our prayers are also connected to judgment. To judgment coming from the throne of God. Some of the prayers of the saints, you know as well as I, are filled with pain and anguish, suffering, torment. Some of these prayers are filled with pleas for a vindication and justice. Remember the souls under the altar in Revelation 6 and their loud cry, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, beloved, Revelation 8 verse 5 tells us that the angel not only took the censer and poured the prayers on the altar, he also took the prayers from the altar. And he took some of them and he hurled them on the earth. And what's the result? Thunder, rumblings, lightning, earthquake. You see, the prayers of the saints not only go up, They also come down. They go up as pleas and petitions, but they come down sometimes as judgments. And maybe that surprises you. Maybe it even upsets you. Did you know that your prayers could could do this, could unleash this, could result in this? You know, it strikes me that praying is pretty much often a sloppy business. We pray out of religious routine sometimes. We pray in order to get. We all have our shopping lists. Either they're out there or they're hidden. We pray in order to impress God and to impress other people. Prayer is something that's so often trivialized. But Revelation 8 reminds us that prayer, real prayer, is an awesome thing. God requires it. God empowers it. It changes the world. It moves the heart of God. It affects all of mankind. It brings praise and adoration up and help and happiness down. And it even, even unleashes the forces of judgment. What a privilege, what a power, what a calling, and oh, what a burden. And yet, beloved, teach your children to pray much. Pray much yourself. It'll change the world. It'll also bring more than judgment. For in the final analysis, and that's the bottom line, it will help to usher in the return of the King, Jesus Christ, the Lord, our Savior, and the King of glory. Amen. 
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.